welcome to Half Hour of Heterodoxy, conversations with scholars and authors, ideas from diverse viewpoints and perspectives. Here's your host, Chris Martin. My guests on today's episode are Craig Frisbee and Joshua D. Phillips. Craig is co-editor of a new book, Cultural Competence and Applied Psychology, an evaluation of current status and future directions. The other editor is William O'Donohue. The book takes a critical look at what professionals in clinical psychology, counseling psychology, and school psychology refer to as cultural or multicultural competence. Craig is a professor in the College of Education at the University of Missouri. Josh Phillips is the author of a chapter in the book. It's titled The Culture of Poverty on Individual Choices and Infantilizing Bureaucracies. His background is in rhetoric and communication, and he's author of Homeless, Narratives from the Streets, which was published in 2016. He's a professor in communications, arts, and sciences at Penn State Brandywine. So, Craig, I think we can start by talking about clinical and counseling psychology, because those are the two of the topics in this book. So the goal in both of those fields when people are doing cultural competence training is to get practitioners to understand that people have different cultural values and what might be abnormal in one place is normal in another. Would you say that's generally the goal and what people are trying to achieve? Well, I would say that the problems with this construct are even more fundamental than that. Um, You know, this in at least the judgment of myself and a lot of the other authors is a concept, you know, that, that is ubiquitous everywhere. And I make an argument in the beginning of the book that uh, approaching this issue is analogous to getting kind of a, you know, or being promised a, a, a 200 page novel and uh, buying that novel and then finding out that, the first page starts with page 101 instead of at the beginning. The first 100 pages are missing. And so it's a concept that uh, has a lot of problems with it. And the purpose of the book was basically to try to go back to the beginning and try to, to critically evaluate what this thing is that we call cultural competence and, you know, I can, you know, a little bit later in the podcast talk, you know, more specifically about what those problems are. But basically, cultural competence is whatever people think it is or, or, or want it to be. So they, they basically have an idea in, in their heads as to what they think they want to teach or what they think students need. And then, and then they just go ahead and do something that they, they will label cultural competence. And so one of the things that the book tries to bring out is that, you know, first of all, we can make a distinction between, you know, how cultural competence is thought of in clinical psych, uh, counseling psych, and school psych. And, and there's some broad distinctions that are pretty evident between those three disciplines. But even within those disciplines, there, there are wide differences in how people conceptualize that issue. So what you're saying, if I hear you, is that there's so much instability in what people call cultural competence that you can't even pin down a realistic definition given given the messiness of that field. I think at various points in the text, we, we say that cultural competence is an impressionistic term, meaning that, you know, we all have impressions 
as to what we think it probably is. And then we act on those impressions. But again, keep in mind that not only are there, are there you know, differences between broad disciplines within psychology, but there are also differences in how people interpret that construct as a function of their, their geographical location. So, for example, if, if we have training programs that, that tend to be situated, for example, out in the, uh, you know, the American Southwest, you know, cultural competence tends to lean towards kind of language issues, particularly Spanish, versus if you have training programs that might be closer to, you know, vibrant na- Native American communities, then it tends to lean towards those kinds of issues. And then you may have programs that might be situated closer to maybe eastern urban areas, in which case cultural competence has more to do with kind of black-white issues. And so, you know, you have those differences. And then then if you have programs that that tend not to have history of being close to those kind of communities, then, then you will see mostly either, you know, nothing that is in the training program about it at all or what's offered may be very superficial. So yeah, it you know, it's an aspirational term, it's an impressionistic term. It, it, it's a term basically that, that we define any way we want it to. And from that, there's just a lot of problems that flow from that. Now, Josh, you come to this not from a clinical or counseling lens, but from the rhetoric or communication lens. Um, what's your perspective on how this term is used? Uh, well, I was really excited to get involved with this prog- uh, with this project uh, when I saw that uh, Dr. Frisbee had put out the call. Um, my background a lot in communication has to do with intercultural communication uh, as well as rhetoric. Uh, so when the call was put out, uh, some of the key terms that stuck out to me uh, was that Dr. Frisbee was talking a lot about these terms like diversity, microaggressions, multiculturalism, uh, inclusion, cultural competence, and there wasn't really any sort of definitive framework for what does it mean to have any sort of success around these terms. So these are sort of feel-good terms that a lot of people put in mission statements. Uh, they say that we need to be more diverse or have cultural competence, but there's no sort of uh, hard line uh, place where we can put our finger uh, with regard to whether or not we've reached cultural competence, uh, whether or not diversity has been achieved. Um, and so I really just wanted to be involved in a project that started teasing out what some of these terms meant, uh, how they're being interpreted differently across disciplines, um, how the literature on it is very muddled. uh, As Dr. Frisbee mentioned, Uh, these terms can really kind of mean anything to anyone based on whatever um, agenda they have, whatever conclusions they would like to reach. Uh, And so because there's no real hard definition for what does success around these terms mean. Um, I think it's important to have these, you know, provocative types of, of conversations um, so that we reach good outcomes for the people that we're trying to um, reach specifically within the uh, psychology and counseling field. For a pretty long time in those fields, there weren't clear definitions of each mental illness. But moving to the issue of training, um, Craig, you mentioned earlier the metaphor of jumping to page 101 without reading the first 100 pages. If you were, let's say, invited to give a very brief talk to a group of incoming counseling or clinical students, what would you tell them about the history of this field? Well, that's a 
a very interesting question, <clears throat> and and it can sometimes be a loaded question, because whenever uh, and, and and I'm sure Josh can probably relate to this. If we're ever invited to speak on something we've written, you know, one of the first things that runs across my mind is what kind of an audience is is there, and what kind of reception we'll get. Because one of the things that I like I like to do is try to get people to think. And, you know, this is an, an area that is highly politicized, highly ideological. And some of the things that, that at least would seem to me as very benign statements or neutral statements can sometimes be uh, perceived as something that's offensive. So that's the first thing that, that I just want to kind of put out there is that, you know, one of the first questions that I would have is I would need to talk to the, to the, to the host and kind of ask, kind of, you know, what, you know, what is the, the climate there that will host a talk that I might have? But, you know, putting that aside, you know, for example, in our last chapter, you know, uh, Dr. O'Donohue and I tried to sketch out some guidelines for what an ideal course in cultural competency would be. And one of the first things that we say up front is that, you know, we're coming from the perspective of, you know, we have, you know, we have these chapters in which people have grappled with this issue. They've pointed out some of the conceptual problems, the empirical problems, the logical problems, the philosophical problems. And given that cultural competence is a term that won't be going away anytime soon, if we absolutely had to talk about this or had to teach a class on this, what, what are some of the principles that we would want students to follow and one of the first things that, that if I were asked to do that, I would say is that, you know, you, you pretty much have to start at the very beginning and define your terms and be very careful in terms of whenever you use certain words, what exactly are you talking about? And so I'd, I would encourage an audience to start there, recognizing that even, you know, basic principles of logic, basic principles of defining words could be well received by some students, but other students who have an ideological agenda might push back at something like that. So I would be coming from the perspective of, you know, we need to be empirical. We need to understand what we don't have data on. We need to understand that when we've tried to investigate these issues, the data is not good. And to be honest about that and honest and open. And so that, you know, that's where I would start. And hopefully my audience would, would be able to to receive that kind of a message. Yeah, you did note it you did note in the book that among the words that are used without close attention to a precise meaning are race, racism, culture, stereotypes, prejudice, and sensitivity. And uh, I agree. Even in social psychology, some of those terms have a very broad meaning. Um, I moved to the US from a foreign country, and when I came here, I realized people often say race when they mean culture, so they say racial yes. difference when they mean cultural difference. And if you come to, to America from another country, that is a bit striking. And, yes. stere and stereotypes, if you look at how the word was used in the 1920s, it, it didn't just mean sort of a narrow trait. Um, it meant an overall impression, like you had a a picture with several facets to it. So mm -hmm. um, several negative characteristics altogether. And now social psychology has taken that word. And even if you perceive 
two people having different positions on one trait, you say people are stereotyping. So that word has, well, the definition of that word has has broadened so much. You can't differ, you can't differentiate stereotypes from statistic, statistical generalizations that people have based on actually reading the news or reading census data. Right. And moving to the uh, issue of of poverty and homelessness, Josh. You've mentioned on a, in a similar vein that um, some audiences are not very receptive to what you have to say. Can you talk about that a little? Sure. Uh, so in 2014, I finished my PhD at Southern Illinois University, and my dissertation was on the issue of homelessness. And the way that I rationalized that in a communication framework was I argued with my committee that most research on homelessness is is dealt with through an economic model. So we usually track how much money do we spend on welfare versus how many people are impoverished, uh, specifically homelessness for my research. And what I argued with my um, committee was there's not the, the, the question that I usually pose to audiences is, you know, when's the last time a person who was homeless testified in front of Congress? So if Congress is making all of these financial decisions with regard to welfare, but they have no input from the perceived beneficiaries, they're probably making decisions that don't necessarily meet the cultural model for how people might engage with finances, wealth security, food security, et cetera. Um, so through that, uh, I crafted this sort of qualitative research where I went around and I interviewed people who were homeless about their experiences. Um, I talked to them about how they interact with the welfare system, how they interact with the charity systems in a, within the town I was in, um, and sort of gain this larger narrative understanding about what it's like to move through the world as a person currently homeless. Um, and that sort of gave us some, that gave some better understanding about how they then might sort of go about interacting with the welfare system. Uh, so some of the things I've found uh, were just a lot of inefficiencies. Uh, so for example, a person who is homeless um, might be, if they're staying at a shelter, uh, they might get three meals a day, which makes the food stamp cards kind of irrelevant. Uh, if you have a food stamp card, uh, you can't buy food that is, uh, you, you can't buy sort of bulk food because you don't have anywhere to store it. So what ends up happening is people say, well, there's other resources I need when, whether it's, you know, they want to buy a pack of cigarettes or a single mom needs to buy a bunch of, you know, diapers and baby formula for a kid. Um, so what she ends up doing is she ends up selling her food stamp cards for cash so that she can buy, you know, the baby, the baby formula or the diapers. Um, so there's this big disconnect between how I think as a policymaker, how I think you ought to use a uh, welfare system and the way in which it's actually used. Uh, a couple other quick findings um, is there's a lot of people who openly talked about how they were scared of taking a job. Um, because if they got fired in six months, then all of a sudden they would go to the back of the line on wh whether it's a housing application um, or whether it's you know some sort of welfare benefit program. So if the, the, the state, if the government sees a spike in your income, you might get cut off for a while with regard to your benefits. And so people are scared of taking that first step because those first jobs that are offered are usually entry level and they usually don't last very long. And so there's this fear of if I'm fired in a few months, um, I'm going to have to go to the back of the line with regard to sort of um, helping out with any sort of, of, of welfare benefit. So there's this huge narrative disconnect between the people who give benefits and the people who receive benefits. So I just want to make sure that the people who are homeless and getting these benefits were involved in the conversations. So this was very much a project that showed concern for homeless people, and you would expect people with very progressive attitudes 
to be receptive. And as I understand, the part about bringing control to the local government was not received well. Yes. So when I got to the end of the book, I'm, I'm not a overly political person. Uh, I just wrote up the results as I, as I heard them from people who were homeless and the people who, who I interviewed had a lot of local solutions that they asked for. So I wrote them up. Uh, and sort of unbeknownst to me, when I started presenting this, I started to get a lot of pushback from people who would say, oh, you just want this sort of Paul Ryan block granting welfare back to the state level um, sort of mentality. And that wasn't my motivation at all. Uh, my motivation was I interviewed a lot of people who were homeless and they would say things like, we need financial help. And we go to our city halls and we go and talk to our mayors and they give us a runaround and they say, well, we can't do anything because those benefits come from the state or we can't do anything because those benefits come from the federal government. Um, so people who are homeless who are sort of at the bottom rung of the political clout uh, ladder, if you will, uh, they have very little access to those representatives who control the benefits. So I wrote up the results and said, wouldn't it be nice if the people who actually gave the benefits, if they were the mayors and the city council folks, um, if people who are homeless had regular access to them. So if we have the benefits come from a local level, uh, then that would be good because people could sort of petition their, their governmental leaders. Um, and for that, I started getting a lot of pushback. And what people were essentially saying was that's similar to the kind of proposals that Paul Ryan has. So it's a guilt by association problem. Yeah. And I mean, I was... I mean, I was aware of of, of Paul Ryan's plans, um, but I mean, that wasn't at the forefront of my mind at all. The forefront of my mind was how can we make sure that um, homeless people have some sort of say in, in their benefits? And it made sense to me that they should be at a more local level. And, and because of that, people started to uh, push back and say, you just want, you know, you're, you're a a small, you know, you're you're a small government, you know, far right Republican or whatever, which I'm not. <laughs> off for the record, um, I just want to make sure that the most vulnerable people in our communities have the most access to those government leaders who are handing out their benefits. So, Craig, have you had similar instances where you're trying to convey something that is actually friendly to progressive values, but you've gotten pushback? Oh, sure. And let me also follow up on what Josh said. And and you know, one of the things that uh, we wanted to do in the book is to invite perspectives from people like uh, Dr. Phillips who actually have real life experience interacting with the population uh, of interest, finding certain things and then going back to the academic community and, and giving, you know, some, some uh, conclusions about exactly, you know, what they found and a lot of times, you know, when you talk about pushback, you know, there, there is resistance to, to this kind of basic research. And, you know, one of the things that occurred to me as Dr. Phillips was, was talking is that, and, and this is something that I've written on, is, is I've tried to make the argument that, you know, um, partitioning people into racial groups and then purporting to teach students that, you know, this is what this group does, this is what this group does, et cetera, is, is, is wholly inadequate for understanding reality. I mean, basically, Dr. Phillips is, is seeing issues from an economic perspective, and economic variation cuts across racial and ethnic groups so that, you know, we can draw some, some conclusions from the behavior of, of underclass folks all the way up to working class, all the way up to middle class, all the, all the way up to upper class. 
and we see some of those commonalities cut across racial groups. And so many times when I've tried to communicate the message that that um, economic issues can sometimes be more explanatory than simply racial, ethnic, categorical issues, you know, people just kind of look at you with, with blank stares because they, they've been continually marinated in this idea that it's race, 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 and that's the big explanatory variable. When really, I mean, you know, economics can many times give you a lot of insight <clears throat> as to differences uh, between people and their attitudes and their behaviors and their, and their ways of coping and et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes it doesn't have anything at all to do with race or ethnicity. I've noticed one gap in the in the cultural competence world, and my knowledge of it is not as rich as yours, but one gap is it does not draw that much from the field of cross-cultural psychology, which does use more precise definitions and characterizes distinct cultures using a vocabulary that's quite understandable to people outside the field. It's in a way, it's an offshoot of social psychology. So sometimes there's a reference to Hofstadter or Triandis, but not much engagement with people who are doing work on cultures of honor or cultures of joy, for instance. Do you know yeah. why that might be the case? Well, I just look at it, you know, this way. Number one, um, you know, one of the the fundamental findings that I found in trying to just deconstruct the word multicultural and multiculturalism is that when you look at the field of uh, cultural anthropology or any other branch of anthropology, these are folks that are serious about studying this word culture and the concept behind it. And as a result, I think in my last count, there, there's something close to 300 different definitions of culture that people argue over and each definition is more abstract than the last one. And so cultural anthropologists are ones that, that recognize these problems and they, they you know, devote serious argument to this concept. The minute you go over to applied psychology, there's no such struggle. Basically, culture is your racial group or your ethnic group. And, that, and that's basically it. So anyone who is within these particular groups, you belong to that culture. And if you interact with a person who belongs to a different racial group or ethnic group, you're interacting with a person that belongs to a different culture. And that's the way it's, it's characterized in psychology. And basically, this is a foundation that is built on, on, on quicksand. And so if you try to build models, science models on top of that, it's just going to sink. And that's exactly what we found in, in, in the cultural competence movement. And one of the things that I've been trying to do is, is, is trying to at least put across the message that let's look beyond these broad categories and look at other kinds of things. And, and the model that I tend to focus on is a, is, is a model that came out and I think it was 1953 by uh, uh, Cluck and Murray who basically gave a template that has so much explanatory power that it's just stood the test of time. And basically what they've said is that whenever you interact with any individual, keep in mind that what you're seeing in terms of their, their behaviors comes from three sources. The first source is every one of us 
act in ways that are universal to all mankind. So, for example, there, there, are, there are things that, that I know about you, things that you know about me, that you know because, you know, all human beings have those characteristics. So, for example, you know that I, you know, that, that I can't survive without water for so long or that I'm going to have to go to the bathroom every, you know, couple of hours or I'm, I'm going to have to sleep eight hours each day. You know, those, right. you know, those are universal things. The second source is basically all of us share things in common with certain subgroups of the population. And we all belong to various subgroups. So, you know, I'm of a certain age. And so there, there are certain things that I share in common with people who are the same age that I am. I, I belong to a particular racial group, an ethnic group, and I share some things in common with those folks. I'm a male and I share things in common with, with other males. I come from a certain uh, place within the country. I'm going to share some things with them. So that's kind of a second source of variance. And then the third is basically all of us are individuals and we're, and we're different from every other human being who has ever lived because we're individuals. Even identical twins are not exactly identical. And so, so what Cluck Holm and Murray basically said is that whenever you try to help any individual, the, the challenge for, for the clinician is to think of those three things, that we all share things in common with everyone, we share things in common with only certain subgroups, and, we sh and, and we're all individuals, and we have to basically, you know, um, uh, use our clinical acumen to work through those three truths. The problem with the cultural competence movement is that it concentrates on that second principle exclusively to the detriment of the other two. It doesn't acknowledge universals and it doesn't acknowledge, you know, to the, to the degree that it should, individualism. And so as a result, everything is a matter of, of your, your group, your subgroup membership. And hundreds of books have been written for psychologists about, you know, this group does this, this group does that. And it's so inadequate in terms of understanding human beings. Yeah, what I've seen in sociology is a very selective use. So stepping back for a moment, what you said resembles very closely a quote from personality psychology from the 1950s. It was in a, in a seminal textbook, and the quote, just one sentence was, every man is like all other men, some other men, no other men. Yes. And that's for the field of personality. That's about personality traits and how you can group a subset of people as extroverts, but every individual is also individual. Mm -hmm. um, and I've seen in sociology, there's a very selective use of the concept of all people being similar. So when people talk about inequality, the assumption is all people want the exact same level of wealth and income. All people right. want the exact level of representation in a certain job sector that they have in the population and right. so forth. So there's a selective use of that construct, which actually is also harmful in some ways, because if different groups have different cultural values, on that basis alone, you'll see some differences in income and some differences in job choice. Mm -hmm. But um, I've also seen the problem of people waiting the second part, by and large, very, very heavily. Yes, and and Josh said something interesting. He, he talked about some of the the uh, pushback that he received from his research that was of a political nature. And you know, you know, one of the sad things of this particular uh, uh, 
construct is that it's very, very politicized. And so students are marinated in this, in this idea that certain groups or certain uh, peoples are, are perpetual victims. And so this comes from kind of a Marxist kind of a framework. And they see things in that particular uh, uh, um, framework, you know, that, that the world consists of oppressors and the oppressed, uh, victims versus victimizers, the dominant culture versus the subordinate culture, and particularly within counseling psychology, that is a perspective that is just uh, trumpeted. You know, I, I'm even, you know, even though I'm not a counseling psychologist, I, I'm aware that there's this <clears throat> uh, movement called a, um, I think it's called the Fifth Force in counseling psychology where where social justice is now supposed to be integrated into all aspects of the uh, counseling psychology curriculum. Was that a movement that started at a national level with a national association of psychologists? Yeah, I mean, I, as, as I understand it, you know, uh, some of our professional organizations and you know, you know, APA is one, but I, I think that there's an American Counseling, you know, Association and other subgroups as well, which have meetings of experts where where they basically write position papers and, and guidelines documents. And, you know, this is something that is, is being pushed now within counseling psychology that you have to be a social justice advocate in order to be a good counseling psychologist. And, of course... When you look at that concept critically, there's just a whole host of assumptions that, that have not been empirically validated, but just are accepted by faith. And so, you know, students come to learn that if I want to be a good psychologist, I'm going to have to buy in to all of these kinds of uh, ideologies. And, and it's very anti-empirical. Yeah, that's a nice segue into the next thing I wanted to talk about, uh, which is... Can people be punished either implicitly or explicitly for for pushing back against this? So for refusing to be quote unquote culturally competent in the way that uh, your instructors want you to be? Well, I, you know, I, I want to only share something that, that that is as vague as possible because again, I don't want to implicate individuals, but you know, I've I've been aware of situations with students and also. Um, uh, faculty who are being considered for positions that they are sometimes interrogated by other faculty in terms of their views on certain issues, one of which is, is, is homosexuality. And I, I can think of one instance in which we had an individual who uh, tried to avoid answering those kinds of questions, but when pressed, they basically said that, look, you know, I... I treat everyone with dignity and respect, but I just have to be honest, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a Christian and my faith teaches me, you know, X, Y, and Z about, you know, uh, some of the, uh, uh, issues related to homosexual behavior. And, but even though my faith teaches me that I treat every individual as, as a uh, person of worth and that answer was not acceptable. And the person's faced a lot of, uh, uh, pushback and persecution for simply saying that they're a, they are a, a conservative Christian and that they have these particular views on on sexual orientation issues. So yes, that the, there is a a you know concerted effort in some places. I won't say that this happens in all places, 
but you know, the more and more we we uh, give a wide berth to the kind of the social justice progressive movement, this is sometimes uh, can be the consequences of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say briefly, um, at specifically at some former institutions of mine. Um, I, I have heard stories of undergraduate students uh, in, in my office, uh, just kind of in my office talking to me about just kind of how they're doing in school, uh, nothing too rigorous, um, but just this idea that they have specifically avoided um, either giving public speeches in classes or covering certain topics in classes uh, because they knew that their conclusions were um, different or weren't going to be accepted. So they would go instead and write a paper or give a speech about a very benign, non-controversial topic. Um, and students have told me these stories because they know that you know if, if they take a class with me, they're welcome to explore any issue from any angle and reach any conclusion that they would like. Um, and my students are completely unaware of my personal politics or conclusions on any political issue. Um, and so what's concerning to me, it's not just that students are avoiding this idea of, you know, rigorously digging into certain important issues, you know, race, gender, sexuality, et cetera. Um, but then they're also, if it's a, if it's a class where they're exchanging papers and peer reviewing, or if it's a class they're giving speeches, um, then their classmates are also sort of void of hearing those sides of the arguments. Um, and so this, this idea that students who are 18, 19 years old aren't even allowed to ask questions or explore certain subjects from certain angles. Um, I've definitely heard those stories before and it's, it's, it's almost, I mean, it, I would say it's frustrating, but it's almost, I mean, it's, it's sadder than that for me. You know, I, I, I signed up to do this job because I, I like this idealized wolf of the mind type of career where we get to ask hard questions, kind of explore them for a while. Then we might find out that those, you know, those questions or those conclusions are a little bit nutty or they're wrong or they're kind of preposterous. Um, but just allowing 18 and 19 year olds to, you know, ask really interesting questions and maybe explore something for a while. Um, and the fact that they're just avoiding it and they're kind of going the safe route. Um, I'm not sure that college should be a safe route. I think it should be a place where, you know, they can kind of explore things from different angles and might find out that they're wrong. Um, but you know, that's okay. Yeah. A large part of, um, the new book by Greg Lukianoff and John Haidt is about a culture of safetyism and how, opinions, political opinions are now considered a threat to safety, which is a, a weird form of rhetoric. I mean, I can understand in some cases, yes, slurs should not be welcome. But when you start talking about political ideas that are held by 40 to 50% of the population, I think just part of being a functioning citizen is understanding that sometimes you have to have conversations with people whose opinions differ from yours. Yes. And, you know, one of the things that, that, is also frustrating is that I, you know, back in um, <clears throat> 2013, I, I took a lot of time to write a book about um, uh, uh, meeting the psychoeducational needs of, of minority children. And uh, before I even wrote the book, I, you know, I, I had an awareness that a lot of the things that I was getting from academia were just not true. And so I, I wanted to basically craft a text in which I would basically go out to the real world, uh, review the literature from people who do a lot of writing in terms of, you know, we've, 
we've tried these programs in schools and we found that these things work or these things don't work. And so, you know, I spent a significant amount of time, you know, writing this book because I thought that when I would be finished, that the field would embrace something that would put together uh, actual ideas that work in the real world. Uh, but one of the things that I discovered as I was writing it that, you know, what I was finding goes completely opposite of what academia says is true. And so, you know, when I did kind of debut the book, it was met with, with utter silence and hostility. And it, it, it was puzzling because here's a field that has basically been saying to the world, we want to find what works with these vulnerable populations and they keep portraying themselves like that. But what I've come to find out is that, you know, they really don't want that. What they really want is for people to talk about things that, that fit a, a certain narrative or fit a certain set of uh, assumptions. And that if you actually find what works and it doesn't fit those assumptions, academia doesn't want to hear about it. I think that's one of the things that has motivated a lot of people to join Heterodox Academy. And the fact that we have thousands of members attests to the fact that this is a frustration for lots of scholars in America and around the world. Well, I'd love to talk to both of you further, but the show is half hour of heterodoxy, so I'm sticking to the half hour <laughs> limit here. Uh, thank you both for joining us. It was a pleasure having you. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you. Thanks for tuning in. In the show notes, you can find a link to Cultural Competence and Applied Psychology. The book includes a chapter by Sean Stevens, Research Director at Heterodox Academy. The show notes also have a link to a C-SPAN video of Craig Frisbee speaking at a panel on education in the Black community. You can follow Josh on Twitter at JoshPhillipsPhD. Phillips is spelled with two L's. Coming up, we've got an episode with historian Kevin Cruz. We'll be talking about his new book, Fault Lines, a History of the United States Since 1974, co-authored with Julian E. Selizer. That episode will go live in early January, which is also when the book comes out. If you have any comments about today's episode, you can contact me at podcast at heterodoxacademy.org or tag me on Twitter at chrismartin76. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find out about the show. Thank you for listening. This podcast is produced by Heterodox Academy. Find us online at heterodoxacademy.org, on Twitter at HDX Academy, and on Facebook.